morning. So if you could go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. So Mark's not here, so I'm going to do whatever I want, basically. Um, hopefully he's not watching. Just kidding. All right, so uh, if you've been tracking with me, I've been going through a series on Acts, and I've called this series Family History, and the idea has been to get to the root of what our heritage is as Christians, what the early church did, what their priorities were, how they behaved, how they lived, and in a way, imitate, learn from, uh, and be inspired by who they were. And today we're going to look at one of the most iconic moments in Scripture, which is the conversion of Saul. Uh, we're going to do something a little different with it, um, but I want you to hang with me, and I think it will pay off at the end. Uh, I'd also like to say that my conclusion, a lot of it's coming from um, two great thinkers, Sam Albury and Ray Ortland, who've uh, influenced me a lot recently, and so just wanted to give them a shout-out. I think they'd be pleased the, in the way that I'm using it here, but... Let me read this passage. We're in Acts chapter 9. Um, we're going to look at both parts, both Saul's conversion and then the church response. But let's start just by reading Saul's conversion, and then we'll pray together. Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray together. Father, your word is good. We have already sung of your goodness. If anything worth happening happens here today, it'll be because of you. So we look to you, we eagerly await what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So some of you may be aware of a uh, podcast that's been running from Christianity Today recently, and there's been a lot of conversation about it in Christian circles called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's a detailed look at a, uh, a reformed megachurch in Seattle uh, that had this quick escalation and then total collapse, kind of famously. And it's a look in particular at its charismatic pastor, Mark Driscoll, and some of the things that went on there. Uh, I've been listening to it and discussing it with some of my friends, and honestly, listening to it is painful because of the, um, I mean, it's painful to listen to a church fail, but it's kind of the perfect mix of good and bad happening and how confusing that can be within the church. There's so much, like, jaw-droppingly bad ministry going on that they're discussing, and yet at the same time, you still hear people who are conflicted about it, and they discuss, like, yeah, I knew there were these bad things going on, but my life was also actually changed while I was there. Uh, the podcast's really well-produced and interesting to think through, but there are episodes that are so depressing that, honestly, when I walk away, it, it leaves me thinking dramatic things, like, is this church thing even possible? 
Uh, can lives really be changed? Can we point towards Jesus without destroying each other? Can we get more invested with one another without wounding one another? Is it possible to have power and not use it against each other? And I guess bigger, you know, is Christianity plausible, like outside of Jesus and his life? And so the question I want to answer today is, is gospel community possible? And that might seem like a bizarre question to ask for this text. But I think in a, in a weird way it answers that question. Uh, and I believe the answer is yes, and I think it's yes, because this story is actually a story about how the church works. And what we're going to see is we're going to see Saul, and then we're going to see the church response. And the reason I think it's possible is because... Jesus came for his enemies. Because Jesus came for his enemies, a gospel-driven church is possible. And it's possible because Jesus shows us mercy, and then we show mercy. So that's going to be our big idea today. Because Jesus came for his enemies, he shows us mercy, and then we show mercy. And we're going to look at that here today. So let's start by looking at Saul. Uh, and up to this point, if you've been paying attention in Acts, Saul has been a pretty constant presence. Luke kind of checks in on him and what's going on with Saul as we're going through. And the biggest thing that we've seen him do is uh, the, the first major martyr, Stephen, dies, and Saul is there, and he approves of it, and he thinks it's good. And it seems to leave him, lead him to this bigger uh, persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. He begins driving them out, and in a way, he's kind of seen as the, the driving force between spreading Christians outside of Jerusalem. Uh, one of the passages says, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And frequently, that stay in prison ended in death. So he is directly responsible for the death of many Christians. But the great ironic God thing happens time and time again in the Gospels and in Acts. People try to do things that are wicked, and God just whoo, immediately turns it into something good. No matter what the intent of the enemy, God makes it work all things to those who love him. These Christians that Saul is driving off, like Philip, whom we looked at last time, they're evangelizing. They're spreading the gospel. And Paul drives them out of Jerusalem, and they just start spreading the gospel all over the place outside of Jerusalem. And this bothers Saul very deeply. He's very zealous about this. He's passionate about it. And so when we check in on him again, but Saul still breathing threats and murder, he's like, his breath is angry, right? He is just kind of ranting hatred. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He's like, hey, let me go get them. They ran away from me. I want to hunt them down. It's like the anti-gospel. He is traveling around the world to cause death. That's his goal. Uh, later on in Acts, he describes his state at this point, and he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but then when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He is an enemy of the gospel. What's really crazy here is Saul believes deep, deep down he's doing the right thing. He believes that he is trying to do what's right. He believes that he's pursuing God. 
And it's a helpful reminder. If we believe that we're following God, but the primary fruit of our lives, the primary thing that we breathe out is hatred, frustration, and anger, I think we have to double check what's going on in our hearts. Uh, right now, culturally, I think the tracks are greased for us to hate each other, to hate our neighbors. If you spend any time on social media or watching the news, you'll feel that pull to hate your neighbor. But if we're following Christ earnestly, this isn't where we'll end up. And if we have ended up there, we should ask what we're doing. Who are we following? And if my even saying that kind of bothers you a little bit, check yourself a little bit. Why do I end up there? Am I there? So Paul, Saul, sorry, as he is beginning, we, we track with him as he's walking down the road, he's going to persecute more Christians, and this is, this is known. The Christians know that he's coming. And you can imagine the conversations they're having. Like, we just got away from this guy. What do we do? Do we hide? Do we come out and kind of, here we are? How are we going to handle it when this kind of famous killer of Christians shows up in our town? And you have this moment. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, this is verse 3, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what happens as he's walking down the road? He is directly confronted by Jesus. In a personal way, he's directly confronted by Jesus. And I want to point out a couple of things about this. Firstly, Jesus appearing and asking this question, this is a very Jesus question, right? If you've been following with me at all, one of the things I hammer a lot is Christianity is not about intellectual assent. It's not about philosophical assent. It's not about, like, cultural assent. It is a relational, it's a relational thing. It's a relational question. When Jesus shows up to Peter after he betrayed him, he says, Why, you know, do you love me? James says time and time again, even the demons believe God is true. It doesn't make them followers. And Jesus shows up and asks this very relational question. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, because we're kind of post-enlightenment Westerners, I think we like to think the way someone becomes a Christian is they lay out all the worldviews, walk around the store, try them all on, and then stick with Christianity because it's the most rational one. But firstly, that's not how anyone makes a decision. And secondly, Christianity is relational. While apologetics are helpful and philosophy is helpful and frequently it's the last straw that has to break, at the end of the day, being a Christian means coming into contact with Jesus, who is real, right? It's about the logos, the word becoming flesh. John 1 is such a, a mind bomb for people back then. The word, the philosophy, the truth, this abstract thing becomes a person. We relate to it. This is true of Saul and it's true of us, that becoming a Christian means bowing before the person of Jesus. That's what's going on here. Jesus doesn't show up with a list or all these things. He shows up himself, and he shows up for us as well. One of the things that can be dangerous about this passage, and I've seen people use it, is we like uh, dramatic testimonies, and, and I understand why. And I think uh, we can take this passage, and sometimes if we don't have a dramatic testimony, we can feel a little, like, you know, second rate there. Some of you are kind of ashamed of your testimony. It's kind of boring. It's like, I was born in a Christian family. I went to Christian camp. I pray and stuff. And uh, I never can remember a time when I didn't know Jesus as Lord. Can I say one thing to that real quick? Hallelujah! Okay. 
Uh, if you're a Christian parent, wouldn't you do anything for that, for your kid? Isn't that what you want? Sometimes people seem less convinced by that kind of testimony, but look, if you want testimonies of adults coming to believe in Christianity, you don't go from like 12 people to a worldwide religion without some adult conversions. Throw a rock. There are probably several people in this room who have adult, you know, converted later on in life. Some of you, on the other hand, do have a story like this, and God has used it in awesome ways. Can I say a word to that? Hallelujah! Very cool. Praise God that he delivers people even when our lives are set against him. Look, both types of stories have these things true about them. They're both miraculous, and they're both about a relationship with Jesus. That's what unites us. So, we're not going to play the hierarchy game. For Saul, these two things are true. It's a miraculous intervention that puts him before the person of Jesus. Later on in Acts, when Paul is retelling this story, he fills in a little bit more, and he adds another line. He says, after Jesus asked, why are you persecuting me? He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And the metaphor here is that Paul is like a young steer, and Jesus is the farmer using these goads to break him in. And what it reveals is that Jesus has been working on Saul for a little while. This is not just kind of this singular moment, but it's this climax of this campaign that the divine has been waging against Saul. And for some of you, this resonates. You can think about when you became a Christian, and you can kind of look back and see the breadcrumbs. And you can see, like, oh, man, you know? Yeah, I ended up beside that person on the bus, or I ended up in a relationship with that person. How did that happen? And there was that. And it starts that you realize that there's been this divine conspiracy against you to bring you to what is truly good. And so I think we can use a sanctified imagination and, and guess what, what are some of the things that began to draw Saul. Uh, John Stott makes a couple of predictions. Did Saul hear Jesus teach? Was he in the temple? Did he hear Jesus teach and did it kind of root down? Did it plant a seed? Did he hear rumors of what Jesus was teaching? And even though a part of him was like, this is wrong, did he start to, um, did it put a splinter there? The resurrection. This can't be overstated. There are people walking around who are like, yeah, there are like 500 plus people who are like, I saw Jesus resurrected. And probably some people he trusted, right, are now walking around saying, hey, Saul, I don't know what to tell you, man. He was dead, and then I saw him alive. That would also put a splinter in your brain, I think. The sermon and witness of Stephen, who's martyred. Stephen gets this full sermon explaining everything, and the way Stephen handles Saul, who's like breathing anger and hatred, and is killing Stephen. Stephen says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen offers love to Saul as Saul is murdering Stephen. It had to stick with him. And finally, I, I just wonder if the, he is becoming this hateful person. I wonder if that affects him. If he wonders, is this kind of the end of the journey I'm on? Stott quotes a philosopher who says, the very fanaticism of Saul's persecution betrays his growing uneasiness because fanaticism is only found in individuals who are compensating secret doubts. Uh, if I even look at my own life, so one of the things that all my students know is I like, I hate technology, I'm kind of famous for it. I have a dumb phone and uh, every time I pull it out, my students are like, <gasps> um, how do you live? Uh, if I'm honest with myself, 
part of the reason that I crusade so hard against all the tech stuff is because it gets me so bad. Like if I'm sitting and I'm trying to do work and I have free access, I'm gonna check sports and news like 40 times a day. It's embarrassing, I'm a grown man, you know? Like get a hold of yourself. And so sometimes when I hear myself like kind of ranting against it, I'm like, you know why you're doing this? Because you're not any good at it either, you know? It's like a compensation for shame. And I wonder if Saul is in the same boat. If the more he feels these doubts and this unease, the more he kind of, like, I'm going to will myself. To, it makes him angry, right? He has to wonder, like, why do I hate this so much? What is happening? And finally, look how this ends in verse 8 through 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This dude rolls up into Damascus ready to kill people with power. And instead he comes in blinded, led by other people. He's been taken captive by Christ. It's totally flipped. He thought he was entering with all the power and he enters in total humility. It's the kind of thing God likes to do a lot, actually. Now, we know that this story made the church uneasy when they started meeting a changed Paul. Because we'll see it in a minute in the church's reaction. They're like, this guy? You remember what this guy did? He, like, tried to kill all of us? He's going to be, like, part of the church now? You want to save this guy? He hates us. This instinct is understandable, but it reveals something about how we view Christianity. It's that old question I occasionally get from students. Well, what if Hitler converted right before he died, right? Would he still be saved? I don't think I could accept that. The question betrays something about how we believe salvation works. Think about who Saul is. He's directly responsible for the deaths of many Christians. He's separated families. He's thrown people in prison. But we're not saved because we're decent and good. We're saved because Jesus saves us. Period. It's not like there's like this group of decent, good people that Jesus is really interested in, and then on the side he's like, yeah, and I'll also save these really bad people. He comes for his enemies. Uh, I recently rewatched that old 90s movie uh, Hook, starring Robin Williams, it's Peter Pan. I don't know why I watched that recently, but there's the, the point of the story is Robin Williams plays Peter Banning, who's like, Peter Pan came back to the real world, he grew up. And in the story, his kids are kidnapped, and he has to go back to Neverland. Remember, he's Peter Pan, fight Captain Hook, do all those things, you know. And when he first gets to Neverland, he can't really remember that he's Peter Pan. And he's wandering around Neverland. He's wearing a full suit. Pirates are trying to take him captive, and he's, like, holding out his credit card. He's trying to write a check. And they're, like, throwing it overboard. Like, it means nothing to us, you know. Uh, he's like, I'm going to get my lawyer. They don't know what that means. He begins kind of throwing out his resume, right? But none of that works. And it's a little like, I think, what we tend to do in front of God, is throw out our resume, right? This is why you should love me. Look what I've done. Look what I do. And it's like, none of that works. Our good works serve a good purpose, okay? They glorify God. They further his kingdom. They can draw us closer to him. They can point others to Christ. They make real community. They can help give us assurance of faith. But you know what they can't do? They can't save us. They can't buy us God's favor. That's a free gift. Uh, we read up here 
that Paul gave his resume, right? He gives his resume. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was this great guy. But you know what? It was all rubbish compared to knowing Jesus as Lord. This is good news for us. Some of you have done some really terrible things that you feel deep shame about. Jesus doesn't come for you incidentally. You are who he came for. It's not like, well, yeah, Jesus saves these types of people, but if, he really, if we really talked about what I have done, I don't think I'm, I'm like, I'm just kind of squeaking in. You're not squeaking in. Jesus comes fully for you. That is what's true. And if you think that you are somehow elevated over the people who've done something really bad, that might be the really bad thing you're doing. <laughs> Jesus comes for you too. We are all equally lost apart from God. Even the good things we do are rubbish apart from Christ. We're not bonus targets. Jesus comes for his enemies. We're his enemies. He shows us mercy like he shows Saul mercy. So the answer to the hypothetical, what if Hitler confesses Christ, is, <laughs> that's my baby. Hey, Posey. Uh, she wasn't liking what I was, had to say, I guess. Um, the answer of what happens if Hitler converts on his deathbed, if Hitler earnestly repents and turns to Jesus and cries out that he's Lord and begs for mercy, you better believe he's going to heaven. You better believe he's saved by the gospel. Because Saul is saved by the gospel. Now we get to this second story, and this is where we're going we're gonna to do the payoff. Is a gospel-driven community possible? To be honest with you, when I first read this passage, I thought this part was kind of a tack-on. Like, uh, this part, you know, the, the real awesome part is Saul going down the road and the light. This part is amazing, and I think it gives us a pathway forward as the church. So, let's do this. We move to this new figure, Ananias. And I'm just going to read this for you. Let's go from, let's read a little bit, starting at 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision. And now remember, Ananias knows Saul is coming. The Christian community is gearing up. They're like probably getting ready to die or to hide or whatever they've decided. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. You want me to send, you want to send me there? That's suicidal. I'm trying to avoid this guy. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias obeys, and this is where things get pretty amazing, I think. So last we heard from Saul, he's in his, this house fasting. He has no vision. He's blind. Can you imagine what he's going through right now? This mix of, like, guilt, shame, and gratitude. Guilt and shame over. Now he's recognized, like, every person I dragged out of that home, every person, every woman, every child, every man that I dragged out of a home, that I justified the sounds of their, of their cries, 
I justified that sound by saying I was doing what God wanted me to do was evil. My justification was wrong. And you can imagine the full weight of every one of those moments hitting him really hard. I mean, you would only expect that to be true. And then on a parallel line, you can imagine he's thinking, I can't believe God didn't just wipe me off the face of the earth or swallow me up. And so he's there, he's fasting, and he's just waiting. And Ananias walks in, and this happens, 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. This moment is so important. It's not just acceptance and forgiveness from Christ, which is everything, but acceptance and forgiveness from his people. Acceptance and forgiveness from the people he was persecuting. I don't think anything makes Christianity more plausible than this moment. At the beginning, I mentioned this. I think this is about how the church should work. Here it is. Many of you have actually had this moment. You've confessed your deepest sins, your deepest shame to a believer, and they've placed their hands on you and said, brother, sister, I'm here. I affirm you. I see you. I love you. You can imagine Ananias walking in, scared, potentially like, I'm going to die, and he comes in and he sees this weak, guilt-wracked man, blind, and sympathy takes over, and all he can do is put his hands on him and say like, me too, man. Me too. But Jesus came for enemies. So he came for you. He came for me. And we're together on this. Those of you who've experienced this, I think those are, that's radically, that, that moment changes lives. I've seen it happen. Uh, there was a story I read in the New York Times. Um, oh, I'm going to mispronounce his name. Hmm. There is an Italian gentleman with a great name <laughs> that I'm not going to dare to pronounce. Uh, I actually listened to the How to Pronounce It a couple times this morning, and, you know, there you go. Anyway, he is, uh, he's in Italy. He's a great chef. Apparently, he's what they call a super taster. Super taster means when he eats food, he experiences all of the different flavors. He has, like, a heightened sense. He would do things like train chefs how to distinguish between certain types of Parmesan cheese and that kind of thing. I mean, high level. He wrote reviews uh, of restaurants. He worked at a restaurant for a little while. He gets COVID. He loses his taste. Uh, and he said the moment when he first drank coffee and it just was hot water was, I mean, that's his life, right? And he spent a little while very sad about it and then got to work and, and started trying to do research and figure out how to bring it back. And at some point, he makes it public that me, the great super taster who writes reviews about food, I cannot taste anything, but I'm here. I want to help other people in my situation. Let's go. And he begins getting all these letters from chefs all over the country who are in the same situation but can't tell anyone. These chefs who have been cooking but cannot taste the food that they are making and are terrified that somebody will discover it before their taste comes back. The story's really cool. He ends up uh, kind of working with a lot of uh, psychologists and 
they realize that part of the key is not trying to remember what something tastes like, but remembering a memory with that thing in it, connecting it to memory. So you don't try to remember what the pie tastes like, you try to remember eating the pie at your grandmother's house. Uh, and he said the first time he was in the shower and he got a, a whiff of the coconut from his shampoo, he just started sobbing. Uh, and he said he's not fully back, but he's getting closer all the time. That's kind of the church, right? That's what we're supposed to be. Like, we're the ones who say, yeah, I can't, I can't do this. I can't taste. I can't smell. And the people who are faking and working hard to make sure it looks like we got it all together are like, me too. I can't either. That's the church. Ray Ortland, and I'm paraphrasing, he puts it this way. If we proclaim the gospel from up here, but we don't have a gospel culture, we don't have the gospel. And what is the gospel culture? It's a place where the truth that we are enemies, saved by God, by pure grace, infiltrates everything. And that means that there's a place in the church where you can talk about the deepest sins and the deepest shames in your life and expect to receive the grace of Christ. That's what the gospel culture is. Everyone should feel like there's a place to confess their darkest sins. We talk about spiritual warfare a lot. Satan doesn't want that. Satan doesn't want a church where people are confessing their deepest, darkest sins because those deepest, darkest sins and shames are the place where Satan has the biggest foothold. It's the place where he is constantly whispering, yeah, but you did this. Yeah, but you're terrible. I know they say that, but they don't know the real you. Constant, constant, constant. And that moment when you confess sin is the moment that hold can break and someone can say, I know this about you. I hear you and I still love you. I'm with you. Christ loves you. I see the bravery of that confession and it testifies to the goodness of Christ. I don't think there's anything more important to the enemy than keeping us from confession and acceptance. I want to say this too, some of you have tried this. Some of you have tried to be vulnerable and have tried to talk about sins. Have you committed or shamed that you have and for whatever reason the church did not reach out in love and I'm deeply sorry. I'm deeply sorry. And that was not reflective of Christ in any way. I have a friend who confessed a sin to his pastor in confidence a while back and the meeting went okay but when he came the next Sunday Based on the way people were looking at him, he recognized that that pastor had shared that with several people. You know what? It's like a miracle that my friend is still a Christian, I think. I think it testifies to Christ's goodness. So here's my challenge to you all. Grace Presbyterian needs to be a place where people do and can confess their sins to each other. And here's the thing about confession is it can feel like you want it to be a one and done, right? I'm going to confess this big sin. Whew, that was hard. I'm done. The, the thing about confession, we confess the same sins over and over and over. It's embarrassing, right? Yeah, I confessed that last week. Can I get some new interesting sin? You know, <laughs> I'm going to try something different just to mix it up in confession time. That's part of it, right? That's part of the humility. Yeah, we mess up a lot. We hit the same tracks in the road a lot. Sometimes it feels like we're in the same place for years and years and years and years. And then maybe one day we look back and go, oh, wow, somehow. I don't quite struggle with that quite as much. Can I say one other thing as a, as a teacher of young people is um, if you have an opportunity 
to speak into the lives of young people, and they come to you in a vulnerable moment, I know it is very tempting to hit the panic button if it's something that scares you. I know it's tempting to see it all the way to the end, to knock down the dominoes and say, this is probably where it's going to end up. It is so important in that moment that you not respond in panic and that you stick your hands out and say, you're my, you're my kid, I'm with you, and work out the details later. And if as you hear that, you think, you know, there are places where I've responded with panic, talk to your kid about it. Hey, you came to me really vulnerable and I don't think I responded the right way and I'm, I'm sorry. I don't think you know how much that would mean. So Grace Presbyterian, if it's just a place where we try to be great and hide our failures from each other, we might as well start a bowling club or something, right? But if we want to do a gospel culture, you can see where this requires real bravery. It requires real courage. It requires the Holy Spirit. Friendship should be a place of confession. Family should be a place of confession. And we should see it over and over and over and over. We're the people who lost their taste, and we confess that to people. And they go, me too, and want to talk to us. I think this is the thing that makes Christianity plausible. This is the thing that makes gospel community. If people see this, it changes everything. Ray Ortland, who I've been referencing a lot, he puts it like this, and it just stuck with me. He said, I'm now 71 years old, and one of the most important things right now in my existence is preparing to die well. I want to die honorably. I don't want my family and my church to have to clean up a mess after I die that I had left concealed. I want to die honorably so people can weep at my funeral, rejoice, and move on. And my memory actually provides a lingering blessing into the next generation. And the only way I know how to end well is to live well which is not sinlessness, but confession of sin. It's not sinlessness, but confession of sin. You want to know how to be a spiritual leader? How to set the tone in your family? Confess your sins. So how will the church work? How will we create a gospel community? How does this thing do? This moment, over and over and over and over again. Saul and Ananias. Meeting Jesus and having Jesus and the church in sync with one another reaching out and blessing one another. And observe the outcome. Let's look together. Acts 9.20, And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The result? He knows the good news in his soul that Jesus is good and loves his enemies. And it compels him to go out and speak. And he doesn't do it because it's a thing to check off the list. You can imagine that moment as the scales fall from his eyes. He can see again. And he's like, take me to the temple because I have things to tell people. I came to kill you and your God, your Savior, showed me what forgiveness looked like. And you showed me what forgiveness looked like. And praise God, hallelujah, he's real. Christ is risen. That's what he says. And that's how the church should work as well. Let's pray together. Father, this is a real challenge for us. It's scary to confess sin. I believe in my heart of hearts that confession of sin is not just the place where the church happens. It's the place where you are most ready to meet us. Father, there are a lot of people in this room, I think, who've never thought about this or thought of ways to confess sin. and It's a challenge for all of us, Father. 
it's easy for us to go a long time and not deal with these things. Father, I ask that you would give us the courage to confess sin. I ask that we would look for it, and when it comes, we would respond with grace. Be with all of us who have an opportunity to speak into people's lives. Father, instinctively, we just don't do what's right. We constantly go back to the old ways. We think about performance. We forget that we were enemies, too. May that knowledge salt everything that we do. May people know that we are a place that they can confess their sins because we respond with the same grace that Jesus responded to us. In Jesus' name, amen.